Good evening, everyone. Professor Unger, ladies and gentlemen, my name's Professor Paul Kelly, and it's an honor to be here today as Pro-Director for Teaching and Learning at LSE to welcome you to the school and to introduce this evening's event, which is hosted by LSE and BBC Radio 4. The event is the latest in a series of talks which we here at LSE have been pleased to host in partnership with Radio 4, which are recorded for broadcast. We're delighted to work with Radio 4 on these events and hope this collaboration will continue. It's with great pleasure that we welcome Professor Unger back to LSE this evening. I understand he last spoke here in 2006. Berto, as you will know, is Roscoe Pound, Professor of Law at Harvard University. He served as a minister in the Brazilian government of President Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva from 2007 to 2009. His books, there are many of them, include What Should the Left Propose and Social Theory, copies of which are for sale outside the theatre, and Professor Unger has kindly agreed to a book signing after the event. Joe Fidgen, who will interview Roberto, is no stranger to LSE, having studied a master's in political theory here. Joe has been presenting news for BBC World Service since 2003. As usual, as part of an event like this at LSE, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to Roberto. But now, please join me welcoming Roberto Unger and Joe Fidgen, who will discuss the progressive agenda now. Welcome to the London School of Economics and Political Science. I'm Joe Fidgen, and as you've heard, I'm joined by an audience for this week's special edition of Analysis. I'm going to be talking to Professor Roberto Mangabera Unger. He taught Barack Obama at Harvard Law School and stayed in touch with him after that. Yet last year, he declared that President Obama had to be defeated in the 2012 election. And earlier this year, he warned the British Labour Party that progressives, like its leader, Ed Miliband, must have something new to say. So, Roberto Unger, what is a progressive in your view? A progressive is someone who wants to see society reorganized, uh, part by part and step by step, so that ordinary men and women have a better chance to live a larger life. We'll hear more about that in a moment. Now, to join in the conversation, the hashtag tonight is LSE Progressive. Roberto Ungo, you first appeared on analysis earlier this year in a documentary about the economic alternatives advocated by progressives. And it was clear to us then that we need more time to explore your many passions, which range across economics, legal theory, sociology, philosophy. It's your political vision that we want to talk about tonight. And I stress the word vision because what you want is a reimagining of who we are and the institutions that support us. Now, that's rather abstract. I wonder if you could tell us in a sentence, there's a challenge for you. What, what is at the heart of that vision? The desire to die only once. By which you mean? Uh, that uh, each of us will not die many small deaths uh, and squander our supreme good life with its characteristic attributes 
of surfeit spontaneity and surprise. That each of us will come into the fuller possession of life and conduct ourselves and arrange society in such a way that we can die only once. That's very striking when you set out your vision and how this is to be achieved, that you say to the left, to your own side, to the progressives, you have to abandon equality. Now, this has been a central aim of the progressives. And yet you say it's liberty that we need. That has the ring of a project of the right. No, I never defended abandoning equality. I have here uh, what in the I latest say, article why the left should abandon equality. With a subtitle that is not of my invention. Huh? <laughs> uh, so uh, this is the title of a chapter in a book a book called The Religion of the Future, not yet published. And the title of this chapter is Deep Freedom, The Conduct of Life in the Religion of the Future. What I argue is that in the present form of ideological debate, the right appear to be those who accord priority to freedom, and the left, those who give priority to equality within the established institutional framework. On the whole, in the contemporary world, the progressives have no project. Their project is the project of their conservative adversaries with a humanizing discount. And they appear on the stage of history as the humanizers of the inevitable. Uh, what must distinguish a progressive today is a willingness to resist and to revise the institutional organization and the ideological assumptions of society. And what part will equality play in that institutional so innovation? Once we begin to revise the institutional background, uh, it makes no sense to suppose that our commanding objective is to achieve a rigid equality of outcome or circumstance. No one wants to live in an imaginary Sparta. The real objective is a larger life, uh, a life of greater intensity, of greater scope, and of greater capability for the ordinary man and woman. And the struggle against entrenched inequality is subsidiary to that more inclusive objective. So the aim is a larger life. You talk about the bigness of human beings. That is very reminiscent of late 19th century liberal John Stuart Mill, who also talks about experiments in living, the same kind of language that you were talking about, the chance to innovate within your own life and within society. So the aim, the aim is the expansion of our humanity. We, we become more human by becoming more godlike. But the method is the piecemeal and cumulative transformation of the structure of society. Only because the left has abandoned its structural ambitions has it settled for the idea of humanizing the established regime. 
especially through compensatory redistribution by tax and transfer. That's not good enough. None of the fundamental problems of contemporary society can be solved or even addressed within the limits of the present institutional and ideological settlement. So you are completely opposed to tax and transfer redistribution? No, it's just payments? entirely, no, I'm not opposed to it. It's just entirely secondary to transformation of the institutional background. So, for example, with respect to the market economy, it's not good enough to regulate the market. It's not good enough to attenuate the inequalities generated in the market through retrospective redistribution. It's necessary to transform the market in its institutional content and legal expression so that more people have more access to more markets in more ways. And so that above all, a larger part of society has access to the advanced forms of production and of learning. Similarly, with respect to democracy, we cannot settle for the low energy democracies that exist. By which you mean what? I mean democracies that are organized in a form that inhibits the transformation of the structure, that makes change depend on crisis, and that perpetuates the rule of the dead over the living. And what does that mean in practical terms, if, if you want a, a high energy democracy? Uh, it means a, a whole series of institutional innovations. First of all, innovations that raise the temperature of politics, that is to say, the level of organized popular engagement in public life. How For do you example, get people in, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but, but how do you get people interested in public life when we are faced with so much apathy in the political system? By demonstrating the power of politics to transform pieces of the structure. So the only uh, antidote to the experience of the impotence of politics is persistence in the use of politics to change parts of the structural background. Innovations that hasten the pace of politics, resolving impasse quickly, that uh, allow particular localities to develop counter models of the national future, that establish in the state a power to rescue groups caught in a circumstance of disadvantage or exclusion from which they are unable to escape. What you are talking about here rings a bell with me, and I, I suspect for members of the audience as well, many of whom uh, look young and look youthful. Um, a, com a British comedian, uh, Russell Grant, wrote an article recently which is very widely read, uh, where he describes something not unlike what you're talking about. Um, which chimes with, with one, of the, one of the phrases that you use of a dictatorship of no alternatives. He says in this article, total revolution of consciousness and our entire social, political and economic system is what interests me, but that's not on the ballot. And his reaction to that is, well, I'm not going to vote and I don't think you should either. Is that the correct conclusion for him to come to? No, it's not the correct conclusion. Uh, in the first place, it's not the correct conclusion because if we fail to be 
disenchanted with disenchantment. If we simply abandon the attempt to develop collective solutions to collective problems and withdraw into private life, uh, we establish a self-confirming prophecy of the impotence of politics, and we make ourselves smaller. In the second place, it's not the correct response, because there is a solution. The solution is to take small initiatives that prefigure big changes, to use little things to break big things. And in the third place, it's not the correct response because it's a betrayal of who we really are. We are the beings who are shaped by context, but who always have more inside us, inside each of us individually and inside all of us collectively, than there is or ever can be in these regimes that we inhabit. I want to go back to, to what you just said about doing little things to make big things happen. Have you got an example of that? So uh, transformation begins in, in small innovations that can be uh, grasped uh, and used as the foreshadowing of much larger changes. And is this something an individual can do? Or is it something that only political parties can do? Each individual can do something. Each individual can do something according to his circumstance but his power to exercise this transformative potential increases immensely when it becomes part of a collective movement, so what, a form of collective action. What might this individual do? Well, it depends on what the point of departure is. But uh, right now, for example, uh, there is a momentous change that begins to take place in the form of production. A new form of production, a new way of producing goods and services is emerging in the world. It's characterized by the transformation of productive activity into permanent innovation. It's radically experimentalist. The trouble is that it's typically confined to advanced sectors of each national economy, weakly linked to the rest of the national economy. So what do we want? We want this vanguardism to be established outside the vanguard. We want to disseminate these advanced practices to large sectors of the national economy. And to do that, we have to innovate. We have to innovate in the way that governments can collaborate with small and medium-sized firms, and in the way in which these small and medium-sized firms can cooperate with one another while they continue to compete against one another. Little by little, we can change the character of the market economy, just as we can change the character of democracy. Something, certain words keep coming up, innovation, experimentalism, and so on. These don't come without risks, do they? Because whenever you experiment, so for example, um, we have had various attempts in this country to uh, localize delivery of certain services. And we end up with what's called postcode lotteries, which are zip code lotteries. And what the left believes is that this leads to the more deprived areas losing out. Is that a risk that you see? Yes. So 
And, and this risk is an example of a larger problem that we all face now. Uh, the true object of transformative politics is the transformation of the structure of society as the liberals and socialists of the 19th century understood. However, unlike the liberals and socialists of the 19th century, we can no longer commit ourselves to a dogmatic institutional blueprint. Therefore, we must generate in society a, a, a vast array of experiments so that we can discover the path along the way. And there will be failures along the way. Yes, and uh, a philosopher once said of science that its purpose is to make mistakes as quickly as possible. And that too must be our attitude to politics. Every mistake, unfortunately, will come at a, a human cost. And this is something that the left traditionally worries about. Do you think it just needs to get over it? Uh, we need to create a, a, a system in which we don't require crisis in order to change. So there we have the basic rhythm of European life in the 20th century. The Europeans wake up with war and with economic ruin. And then with peace and prosperity, they go back to sleep and drown their sorrows in consumption. We need another form of political life, a form of political life that dispenses with trauma as the condition of transformation. So we come back to the million idea again of experiments in living. In every domain of social life, in institutions and in culture. Now, we can't achieve this goal simply by changing the institutional arrangements of the market and of democracy. We also have to change education and culture. We need a different form of education. What kind of education do you want? A form of education that is analytical rather than informational in its orientation, that prefers selective deepening to encyclopedic superficiality, that embraces cooperation in teaching and in learning rather than the combination of individualism and authoritarianism in the classroom, and that approaches every subject dialectically by a contrast of points of view. I had a, a ripple in the audience there. I wonder if, if this is a popular message that education needs to change this way. Maybe raise your hands if you think this is the message you want to hear. Pretty broad support here, I'd say, for a, a change in the way we educate people. Isn't there a danger, though, that what you have is a lot of people leaving schools, for example, knowing how to think, but not having any facts? And so the, what we have now in, in Britain and in much of the world uh, is a, a retrograde national curriculum conforming to backward-looking international tests. We need a, a, a strong presence of the state to move the goalposts, to redefine what the objective of education is, to establish schools, state schools, that are better than any of the existing private schools, 
and then only on that basis to give a great latitude to the local educational authorities in experimentation. If we create this room for innovation without changing the framework, nothing fundamentally will be transformed in the character of education. Now, this, this remark that I just made about education can serve as an example of another British problem, which is the problem of devolution and the relation of devolution to central power. The impulse to devolution is not ephemeral. It will persist and become more radical. But devolution can mean two very different things. Devolution can be withdrawal and disconnection. Or devolution can mean the creation in particular localities of counter models of the national future. This second kind of devolution is not the opposite of strong central power. It can be the partner of a democratic centralism. A unitary state without ceasing to be unitary can in fact become the ally of radical devolution at the grassroots. And this combination of the extreme solutions may be more fertile in its experimental results than a traditional federal regime with its rigid allotment of powers among the three levels of the Federation. I wonder if you have a, an opinion on the Scottish question. Indeed, I think that the significance of this contrast between devolution as disconnection and devolution as counter-model will become manifest as soon as the Scottish question turns into the English one. And the English question becomes? The English question means uh, uh, the impulse to devolution arising within England and not simply on the Celtic fringe. Now, I mentioned in the introduction that ahead of the 2012 election in the United States, you called for President Obama to be defeated at that election. Why did you do that? Because the Democratic Party has uh, failed to come up with a progressive sequel to Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. It has relinquished any structural ambition and resigned itself to humanizing the project of its Republican opponents. Uh, as a result, uh, power in the United States for the last several decades has been wielded under a simple formula. Uh, material concessions to the moneyed classes and immaterial concessions to the moneyless classes. By immaterial concessions, I mean a, a defense of the the moral anxieties and commitments of the ordinary working class. And the Democrats, the would-be progressive party, have no project responsive to the needs and interests of the working class majority of the United States. Obama and his collaborators have been complicit in this surrender. Surrender is a strong word. 
uh, a strong word for a national calamity. The American people disagreed with you, though, by voting for Barack Obama. I'm guessing from what you said vis-a-vis -vis Russell Brand, you weren't exhorting people not to vote. Were you asking them to vote against the Democrats? Uh, I was asking them not to have a purely short-termist attitude to politics. What does that mean at the to ballot To take box? programmatic alternatives and partisan direction seriously. So if, if at every turn in political life, we resign ourselves to making the choice that seems to be the lesser evil short term, we can never create an alternative. I'm not quite clear. Were you saying to people, vote Republican rather than the, take the lesser evil? The Democratic Party can only be transformed in defeat. There's in fact very little difference programmatically between the two parties. And no chance of creating a real alternative except in the circumstance of defeat. Did you get a chance to put your views in person to Barack Obama? No. <laughs> Would you have enjoyed it, do you think? No, I don't think I would have enjoyed it because I don't think I would have had any success. Uh, I think that the people now who are in, in the administration, the president and his chief collaborators, confuse conformism with realism. Uh, and they have given themselves over to the established world and desire to be accepted to be accepted by the established interests and by predominant opinion. They have failed to resist. Uh, the president would never have repeated what Franklin Roosevelt said. I want to be judged by who my enemies are. So you didn't get the chance to put this view directly to Barack Obama, but you have got closer to the leader of the British Labour Party, Ed Miliband. You've met him during this visit to London. Did you give him a kicking, too? I had a discussion with uh, members of the Labour Party as I attempt to have discussions with progressive parties around the world. And I do believe that the Labour Party and its leadership are searching for an alternative. What was the key point you made to it? I'm guessing it was you making the points. No, there was, a, there was a genuine discussion. And uh, so a discussion about how to give content to a, a productivist alternative. So the old idea under new labor was accept the financialization of the British economy, accept a slightly humanized neoliberalism, accept the engagement of Britain with the global economic order in its present form, and seek to achieve some benefits that can then be spread around through social programs. There seems to be a genuine uh, conviction now in the Labour Party that that path is not good enough and a search for an alternative. At that point, the discussion must address a whole range of 
tangible issues. So I'll give you two examples. One example concerns the relation between labor and capital. And the other example has to do with the relation of finance to the real economy. Labor and capital. It's not good enough to raise the nominal wage. It's necessary to address the structural problem. The structural problem is that in all contemporary economies, including the British economy, an increasing part of the labor force finds itself outside secure situations of long-term employment. For example, in temporary or subcontracted labor. Labor now, in the wake of the decline of mass production, is being reorganized in the form of decentralized networks of contractual relations. The progressive parties, a labor party, must have a project to address this situation, a way of protecting, organizing, and representing this unstable labor. Second example, the relation of finance to the real economy. The British economy is one of the most financialized in the world. And cosmopolitan finance represents a powerful interest in Britain. In all the major contemporary economies, the system of production is largely self-financed on the basis of the retained and reinvested earnings of private firms. The vast productive potential of saving accumulated in the banks and the stock markets is largely squandered. It's not good enough then to regulate finance. What is necessary is to enlist finance in the service of the productive agenda of society. For example, by tax and regulatory changes that discourage speculative activity with no plausible relation to the expansion of output or the enhancement of productivity. If we were to make a list of 20 topics like these two that I just mentioned, and to develop with respect to them, to each of them, a substantive agenda, we would have begun to execute the task of redefining the trajectory of the progressives in Britain. I want to come back to what you say about labor and capital in a different context. Uh, you talk about the need for labor uh, to be able to move as freely as capital, which raises lots of very interesting questions, which we'll come to after we've had, um, hopefully, some questions from the audience. Anybody like to raise a point? Uh, my name's Lloyd. Um, you've often been described as a pragmatist, and for me, there's no higher praise. I was wondering what uh, we could do. We've got the end point, but a tactic that maybe we could do to bring about these small victories that you talk of would maybe be, en masse, people stop paying their bills to these large companies. I mean, we seem to be governed by fear to make us pay these bills. If we stop paying our bills to Orange or our gas companies that are, are charging us through the roof, surely that would be a small victory and a step in the right direction. What do you think? Professor Edgar, do you think we should stop paying our bills? Uh, disruption is often interesting, <laughs> but it is fertile only when it has some transformative sequel. So disruption, for its own sake, is likely to be counterproductive, to produce a, a backlash. 
Uh, I'm all in favor of disruption if it is then associated with forms of collective action that are carrying a message of reorganization. So I can't evaluate your proposals to stop paying bills until you tell me the other part of what comes next. Further questions? Professor Paul Kelly at the LSE. Thank you. I, I was intrigued by your opening point about politics, transformative politics, providing for a kind of human redemption. But what about those forms of life, the private elements, that are actually challenged by this kind of continual transformative politics, that many real people find as the basis of that sort of human redemption, family, private pursuits? What about those? Where do they fit into your world? So I don't think that there's a simple contradiction between security in a haven of vital protected interests and intimate concerns and the opening up of social life to reconstruction. There should be no such relation. It's the opposite. Let me make an analogy precisely to personal experience. Uh, a parent says to a child, uh, I love you unconditionally, regardless of what you do. Uh, and my love assures you of an unconditional place. Now go out and raise a storm in the world. Uh, so it's this security in the haven that then gives us license to throw everything else open to reinvent. That relation between the love of the parent and the storm raised by the child is the relation that a democratic state should have to its citizens. That is, it, it should secure them this, this, this haven of, of guarantees, this space in which they can retreat, as it were, into the private sublime. But that rather than being the antithesis of plasticity, of openness in society, is the condition of that openness. And that's what I want. I want more endowment, more guarantee, more deepening, more subjectivity as the counterpart to the plasticity rather than as the opposite of it. Another question. A gentleman in the middle there with the glasses. Zeke Butch from the Social Liberal Forum. Uh, a lot of the idea that the progressive left should act as a break on the callousness of the conservatives here in Britain and the perceived economic incompetence of Labour expresses itself in the experience of the Liberal Democrats in power over the last few years. And the trouble has been that when social liberals within the party express even incremental elements of the reimagined market economy that you describe or the reimagined state, we sort of hung out to dry as lunatics or the fringe elements in society. How do we bridge the gap between the institutional framework we are in today and that reimagined market economy or reimagined state that we wish to see without risking being hung out to dry? So in my country, in Brazil, almost all the political forces profess to be social one thing or social another. Everyone is a social democrat or a social liberal. 
And it's as if in our country only one idea were established in politics. The fantasy of a kind of tropical sweep where we would never have to change anything. We would only have to distribute the sugar. The sugar is the social. Now, uh, sugar is not what we should want. What we should want is opportunity, activity, equipment, instruments. That's when politics starts to become serious. Uh, so th that was one of the first examples I gave of, of vanguardism outside the vanguard. There's a new form of production. Production is permanent innovation, but it's in these little islands. Now, how are we going to reorganize it so that these advanced practices can be disseminated through large parts of the economy? We can't have just the American model of the arm's length regulation of business by government. We can't have just the Northeast Asian model of imposition of unitary trade and industrial policy by the bureaucratic apparatus of the state. We need to have a form of decentralized, pluralistic, experimental partnership between the state and small and medium-sized businesses. And then from that partnership, alternative regimes of private and social property can begin to emerge and to coexist within the same national economy. Let me give you a second example the provision of public services. Necessarily a major subject of national politics. Uh, what we have mainly now in Britain and in the world is the bureaucratic provision of standardized low quality services. And the only alternative to that appears to be the privatization of those services in favor of profit-driven firms. But there is, in fact, a third option. The third option is that the state should operate at the floor, guaranteeing a universal minimum of public goods, and at the ceiling, developing the costliest and most complicated services, but that in the broad middle area between the floor and the ceiling, the state should engage independent civil society, not for profit, in the experimental and competitive provision of public services. There are then two great benefits. One is to enhance the quality of the services, and the other is to provoke the independent self-organization of civil society outside the state. Could I just interject there, because we have tried this in one particular area in, in the UK recently, in, in England recently, with uh, the setting up of free schools, and which are much like charter schools in the United States. And this has been extremely controversial, particularly on the left, because it's seen as the middle classes grabbing the best for themselves. So what should the left do? In, in but the there the state, first of all, didn't change first the character of education and didn't proceed in the manner that I just described, which is to operate at the floor and at the ceiling and to engage civil society in the middle zone. So there is actually a common theme in all of these different facets 
of a transformative alternative that we have been discussing. The old focus of ideological conflict was the state against the market. More market, less state. More state, less market. Synthesis of market and state. Now a different focus of ideological controversy begins to emerge in the world. A contest about the alternative forms of the market economy, of democratic politics, and of independent civil society. That's a contest with an immense future. And it has an aim. Its aim, its criterion of success, is equipment and opportunity for the ordinary man and woman to do more with his or her life. So more markets and more governments. At the same time, not as the opposites of each other. Just as democratic centralism and radical devolution are not properly seen, the, the contradictions to each other. Another question. Uh, the woman at the front. Hi, um, Rosa here from the LSE. I was wondering, you talked a lot about the analytical education um, and instead of encyclopedic um, knowledge that students get now, I wondered what this would mean in terms of the transformation of UK universities with higher education in general. So I don't think that's the place to begin. So a, a very crucial area is what comes before the university in the pre-university education. Uh, and there we should not want a stark contrast between general education for elites and vocational training for the masses. What we should desire is a continuum in which general education takes on an analytical focus. Its main object is the acquisition of analytical capability. And practical education gives priority to generic capability rather than to job-specific and machine-specific skills, that is to say, to rigid and traditional professions. So this, this, this new form of education that renders us more capable, that liberates us from the encyclopedia, that develops our capacity to acquire by resisting, is the indispensable counterpart to the institutional reconstruction of the market economy. And both these projects, the economic project and the educational project, are in turn only likely to advance to the extent that we reinvent politics, the organization of democratic politics. One more question in this section. And there's a very enthusiastic woman in the middle of the back. Hi, uh, my name's Elise. Um, I wanted to ask you um, what gives you any confidence that small changes will prefigure big changes. And capitalism usually has the power to hijack and transform such changes and use it to its own ends, uh, for example, on YouTube. 
with the sole possible exception of cosmopolitan finance, uh, I do not believe that there is any major interest in Britain that is irreconcilable to an alternative like the one that I am defending. Uh, to my mind, uh, the chief obstacle lies less in the strength of the opposing interest than in the weakness of our abilities to combine circumstantial calculation with programmatic vision. The resource that we mainly lack is the one that is always scarcest and most important, imagination. A reminder that you're listening to a special edition of Analysis from the London School of Economics and Political Science in conversation with the political theorist, Professor Roberto Unger. Intrinsic to your vision is that labor should be as free to move as capital, which would mean opening borders. Now, obviously, this has economic consequences, which you recognize. Uh, but consider largely practical concerns that can be dealt with through compensation and so on. Although we need to recognize that actually it's the economic consequences that often concern electorates the most. But your bigger vision is of nations as moral specializations. Yes. What does that mean? So Consider the distinctive and poisonous character of contemporary nationalism. Two nations living close together come to hate each other, not because they are different, but because they are becoming alike and they want to be different. A distinctive feature of this contemporary nationalism is the waning of actual difference combined with the impotent rage of the will to collective difference. What then is the correct solution? The correct solution is to equip different societies to create real difference. And then to allow an individual born in one society to escape to another if he wants to join another form of social life. Right now, the nations that exist in the world are in an intermediate situation. They are ceasing to be tribes governed by a principle of quasi-biological succession, as if they were big families. And they are in the process of becoming something else, which is a form of moral specialization within humanity. There is no obvious and incontestable form of social life. Humanity develops its powers only by developing them in different directions. And that is the role of the national difference in a world of democracy. So the idea is if I'm born here but want to live in a theocracy for theocratic values, for example, I should be able to move to 
Iran you should safe? be able to escape. You should be able to escape from where you are. Now, clearly, the, the, the freedom of labor to move, to cross national borders, cannot be established instantaneously. Uh, it would produce dramatic consequences and tremendous backlash. But what is intolerable in the world is that we should embrace a form of globalization in which things and money acquire freedom to roam the world and people are imprisoned in the nation state or in blocks of relatively homogeneous nation states such as the European Union. Things, money and people must gain freedom together in small cumulative steps. Because now, this problem has another aspect uh, of great significance to the future of European social democracy. The other aspect is that as ethnic and cultural homogeneity diminishes through the movement of labor, the inadequacy of money transfers as a social cement becomes more apparent. Money transfers organized by a redistributive state are not a sufficient basis for social solidarity. And as soon as this veneer of ethnic and cultural homogeneity thins, the inadequacy of money becomes manifest. The only adequate basis of social solidarity is direct engagement in helping to take care of other people beyond the boundaries of one's own family. And this is something that you think everybody must do, as well as holding down another job. Either in a voluntary or in a mandatory form, as some form of social service. But uh, there's no way to have real social solidarity in a pluralistic society simply by sending checks through the mail. Solidarity can only exist when we overcome the boundaries of family selfishness. I want to clarify this because it is such an extraordinary thought that everybody must have a job doing whatever they do, but they must also care for someone outside their family. Every able-bodied adult in a society that is solidaristic as well as democratic should have at least two positions a position in the system of production or of learning and a responsibility to take care of other people for part of the working year or part of his life as an aspect of our of our membership in society and without such an engagement how can there be real solidarity do you do this do you have a job in the caring economy too uh, I, I attempt, I attempt to in, engage in different, in, in different ways beyond the realm of my own family. But my attempts to do so are mixed up with my political troubles and adventures. And this is not the moment to describe. <laughs> but I mean, it, it, is, it is a difficulty, isn't it? We're all busy and the economy is as busy working as hard as we possibly can. You're asking yes. a lot of people here. But time expands, right? So this gets us back to the beginning of our conversation. 
when you asked me what I considered most important, and I answered, to die only once. So the supreme good is life. And this is the good that we waste. So under our predominant ideas, the supreme good is always in the future. In the providential future of divine redemption, or in the historical future of a transformed society. But we don't live in the future. The only thing we ever really have is now, life in the present. And so our, our, our highest objective, both personal and political, must be to awaken and to come into the fuller possession of life and to rearrange society so that it uh, discourages us from, from slumbering, from squandering the supreme good. I want to draw together two of the things you've just been talking about. Um, the appeal of diversity and the effect on solidarity. Because there is some, I mean, commentators do point out that while societies, let's face it, made up of people rather than political units or labour, they will accept a certain amount of diversity, but after that point, their willingness to pay the high taxes through which they show a sense of responsibility for others declines. I saw this in Sweden. A very homogenous country until 30 or so years ago. Yeah. And suddenly, a very different population, and the willingness to pay very high taxation is declining. How do you get over that? Through this combination of, of changes, of, of changes, of changes in everything. Because if, take the example that you mentioned of, of Sweden as the prototypical uh, European social democracy. And imagine that this society consists of three distinct worlds. There's the world of the declining traditional mass production industries. Then second, there's the world of the new experimentalist advanced enterprises, which produce an increasing part of the wealth, but employ very few people. And then third, there's the world of the caring economy, in which the state pays people to take care of other people. So, in such a society, there are at least three fundamental problems. First, there's the economic problem, that very few people are directly connected with the activity that is, in fact, producing wealth and undertaking innovation. The second of these three worlds that I described. Uh, second, there's the there's the problem of the disassociation of everyone. They have no engagement with one another. And the only basis that is left for social solidarity are these transfers organized and executed by the state. And third, there's the problem of littleness. No one should be condemned to have a small life by virtue of being born in a small country. Things should be reorganized 
so that they can have an experience of a more heroic existence in their own countries and around the world. Now, you've mentioned the caring economy, and if people don't volunteer to take part in it, you would be happy for it to be mandatory. That's not the only time in your writing that you talk about forcing people to do good things, or more broadly, forcing people to be free. For example, you want people to have to save their money for certain purposes. You want certain benefits to be deliverable only through membership of certain associations. There is underlying this, isn't there? Perhaps a recognition that we're not selfless citizens. You would force us to be free, would you? There are responsibilities uh, that we recognize, for example, through military service or through jury service or through uh, providing the information required for the application of the progressive personal income tax. We accept this idea. Some of them, maybe now, the military service. Now, the question is, well, in, in, in rejecting mandatory military service, we accepted an anti-democratic principle of hiring poor people to fight rich people's wars. And this was not freedom. This was servility. This was the abandonment of a democratic and republican principle. So the, the element of obligation has to be seen as subsidiary to the larger attempt to develop freedom. I think this will be alarming to many people in Britain, a country where suspicion of the state runs deep. I mean, we won't even carry ID cards, whereas you're perfectly willing to in the United States. I think, I mean, maybe let's ask the audience, I think there might be some reluctance to take on this element of mandatory bigness or mandatory freedom. What's the feeling in the audience about how far you are willing to go to make better people bigger? Uh, hands up for people who are willing to take this kind, the kind of compulsion that Roberto and I talking about. Well, I'd say that's 50-50. Now, I protest against this uh, allusion to the idea of compulsion. What let's, would you call it? Let's take another example. What would you call it if not compulsion? No, no, it's a, it's, it's a requirement. Let's take another example. <laughs> Let's take an example. Let's take an example of a system that exists in many countries, not in Britain or in the United States, which is the obligation to vote. Uh, many countries, many democracies around the world require voting. Now, what does that mean? It means that... Uh, you, if you fail to vote in a system of mandatory voting, you pay a fine, a small fine. Uh, so far as I know, no country that has ever adopted a system of mandatory voting has ever then revoked this rule of mandatory voting because it becomes a collective habit, a collective practice of engagement. So you say to the citizen uh, from time to time, every few years, 
you must pay tribute to the Republic. You must turn your mind for a few moments to the affairs of the Republic with the privilege to abstain in the voting. And abstention is immensely more eloquent in a system of mandatory voting than it is in a system of optional voting. So are we to describe such an arrangement as compulsion? I think this is a complete misdescription. I think that by introducing elements of obligation, of requirement, we deepen the system of freedom. We introduce certain mandatory elements in particular parts of social life so that we must, so that we can achieve much greater freedom in many other aspects. Having heard that defence of mandatory voting, I wonder if there's anyone in the audience who would still support Russell Brand and think that actually we have a duty not to vote at the next election. Anyone supporting Brand? A couple of people. Perhaps I could, would you be willing to explain why? Is the microphone around? Thank you. Sorry, before you, before you go, please wait for the microphone or we won't hear you on the radio. Good evening, Professor. Thank you for the very I'm sorry to interrupt. Could you, inter could you, inter could you introduce yourself? Yeah, my, my name is uh, George Davis. I'm from Iraq originally. Uh, the tenant of the discussion that progressive left should think beyond the current institutional arrangement. I start by stating that I have had the pleasure of visiting your beautiful country. And, and to, bearing that in mind, Peoples of Cuba, Chile, Venezuela, Yugoslav nation, more recently Iraq and, and Syria, have all attempted to do just that, but are experiencing the full rigor of the retarding capitalism reactionary forces are all manifested before our eyes. And more recently, what is happening in, in Manila, up an impoverished, the beautiful country under the subjugation of the Americans. I contend that the media has a great role in distorting the facts. Uh, the BBC last week uh, took some of their uh, reporters to Brazil, and the only thing they can report on in, from Brazil was the favelas and, excuse me, the sex workers, as if there was nothing else in your beautiful country. I contend that we have to uh, tackle the bias and uh, media uh, as a first step towards the, the, what is happening around the world, where the poverty is far exceeds the capitalism in this world. Do you wish to take that question? What I desire propose is more debate, more intense debate about everything in every domain of social life. Uh, and this, this brings us back to, a, to our earlier discussion about, about democracy. So uh, what we should want in Britain as around the world is a different kind of democracy. Heated up from the bottom and from the top. From the bottom, 
through radical devolution combined with democratic centralism, not as the alternative to democratic centralism. Through vanguardism, economic vanguardism outside the vanguard, and through the engagement of civil society together with the state in the provision of public goods. And from the top down, to create a style of democracy that allows for anticipated elections, for a broader use of programmatic plebiscites and referenda, for the public financing of political campaigns, and for extended free access to the means of mass communication in favor of the organized social movements as well as of the political parties. Just going to come in there because I, we, we, I'm aware that we are running out of time. I just want to, before we get to general questions, was there anyone on the brand point who wants to defend why we should not vote? There's a, there's a man in the middle of the back there. Hi there, uh, Rafi Farouk, student at the LSE. Um, just on the brand point, I think possibly mainstream media may have misinterpreted exactly what you wanted. So abstaining from voting, I'm not sure whether I would support that, but certainly the underlying principle of empowering everyone uh, to express their disinterest and unrest in the current political system, I think that is the main point. I think brand is uh, bringing across this general unrest from a position of power and um, uh, expression to the masses and bring it to collective people. And that is really what he's trying to represent by saying abstaining from voting. So I wouldn't necessarily support that exact abstinence, but certainly need to express our discontent in a big way. I think I would support that. Having heard an alternative from Roberta Inger this evening, are you persuaded that actually it would be better to participate? I think certainly we need to participate to cause change. Um, I'm certainly said that we can't just sit back and retreat into our private lives. Uh, the question remains how exactly do we create that change? I think uh, your proposal of uh, acting in small ways to create a big change is great. And certainly this political transformation, this, these new changes and uh, are a great way of expressing our current discontent um, as a collective populace at the current status quo. So yeah, I think there are alternatives that we need to empower ourselves to enact. What about open borders? Does anyone have a point they'd like to raise about that? Uh, my name is Jim Christian. Uh, actually, Ecuador has got an open border. You don't need a visa to go and live in Ecuador. Ecuador. Um, I just want to go back to a couple of things, really. I mean, I, I really enjoyed the... Uh, you know, and, uh, I read a book uh, not so long ago, uh, Pablo Friero, Pedro with your press, and he talks about um, basically until we enter into dialogue, until we get the education right, and we enter into dialogue, you know, we won't have proper reflection and we won't be able to take proper action. So until the actual, actually, the education system, see the education system at the moment, see I go, I have come from an education system that has enabled me to live and take part in the capitalist system. That's what it's about. And until that system changes, we've got a system today where people are just, really, they're just here to pass exams. That's it. Not to problem solve, not to sit down in dialogue, dialectically, and solve things. And until we get that right, we can't be properly reflective and we can't take proper action. So for me, you know, it doesn't matter if you vote or you don't vote, what has to change is the educational system. So you agree with Professor? Yeah, 100%.
Anyone got any points they'd like to raise to uh, possibly in opposition to this? Yes, we've got a point here in the front. My name is Joe Mazzaro, I'm a political philosopher at the NLC. Um, at the heart of your proposal, as I understood it, is a certain view of human nature that I find quite arresting and also, frankly, implausible. Um, so it seems like your view, on your view, if we could just get the education system right, um, you'd have a certain kind of human being that both has uh, unmasked capacity and the incentive to work in these nonprofit organizations without the economic incentives to be an active citizen and really be engaged politically. And, and I guess my question is, what evidence is there that large numbers of, of people with the right education would become the kind of human beings that you think they would become? So I don't uh, believe that any of my proposals uh, depends on the view that we can radically change what we are like now. Uh, it's not a conception that we are to replace ourselves with some other kind of being, selfless, solidaristic, and heroic. It's rather that in these relative democracies and these existing forms of market economy, we undertake activities that ordinarily accept the, the framework of assumptions and arrangements. And then we come to challenge and change these assumptions and arrangements only in extreme moments of crisis. What I want is for our ordinary activity gradually to expand so that the piecemeal and experimental revision of the framework of arrangements and assumptions becomes part of the ordinary business of life. It's not a sudden transformation of what we are like now. It's a progressive making bigger of ordinary life and of ordinary people. And that seems to me to be entirely realistic. And our overriding goal in, in the transformation of society. So now we have something else. We have this situation in which the prose of reality is interrupted from time to time by these dramatic moments of personal or collective crisis. In the Second World War, in all the belligerent powers, rates of suicide and depression fell precipitously and then rose again dramatically when universal peace was reestablished. Now, why is that? Because in the circumstance of crisis, people were made to forget themselves and drawn into something that they believed to be larger than themselves. I don't want that enlargement of human life to depend on the terrible devotions of war. I want it to be the product of an expansion of our scope in the midst of our ordinary activity. 
No radical transformation of our natures is at stake in that. What is involved is a, a gradual ennoblement, uh, a making bigger, a carrying a step-by-step -step to a larger plane of intensity so that we become more human by becoming more godlike. Let me cut in there because I know we have time for just one more question from the audience. Gentlemen here. Shara Ali, um, isn't there a formal contradiction or conflict at the heart of your vision? Um, that between diversity within or across societies engendered, if you will, by individuals taking ownership of their destinies, between that and universalism. On the one hand, you want to promote the expansion of the human self, but you cannot be determined, predetermine the societal outcome of that, of that at risk of being autocratic. So can you will the means without predetermining the end? We take a risk, we Democrats and experimentalists. We believe that a larger life is irresistible, that it is seductive. But we subject our conjecture to the test of historical experience. So individuals may retreat. What matters is this dialectic that I described before between security, between guarantee in a haven of protected interests and safeguards and the expanded plasticity in social life. Now, humanity may try it out and then reject it, as you suggest. But uh, that's, the, that's the, the gamble that we make, the proposal that we advance that no one who has tasted a larger life will then want to abandon it. Well, that feels like a good point at which to end. Apologies to those of you who wish to ask questions we haven't wished to get to. But uh, it just remains for me to thank you all very much for coming to the London School of Economics and Political Science tonight. And my special thanks to Professor Roberto Mangabera Bunga from all of us here at the LSE.